This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y. L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this, the second episode in honor of September being the National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month, I chat with Scott, who has over 30 years sobriety under his belt. Join us as we discuss his recovery story and how the world of recovery has changed due to the opioid epidemic. Scott's addiction story and subsequent work in addiction recovery moved from tragic to triumphant. It is a testimony to free will and knowing when you are at rock bottom and ready for change. Here is Scott's story. Hi, my name is Scott Silverman. Born and raised here in San Diego, California. We call it America's finest city. And I want to talk about today is my journey and, and part of what got me to where I am today and why I'm, you know, talking to all of you. Again, I grew up in San Diego. I was a part of a family of four kids. I was the second oldest. And I was uh, in a family that, you know, we had intact parents and, and um, intact, not attack, intact. And we, you know, grew up with, you know, a value system that was pretty strong. And I went to school like most kids do. But I was one of those kids, unfortunately, that didn't really do well in school. I mean, I had a, they didn't really define it as ADHD back in those days. They usually called it some sort of learning disability, which is kind of interesting because once you get labeled as a young child, uh, that label could stick with you for quite some time. But kind of fast forwarding to second grade, I had a good buddy of mine who'd been on a skiing uh, event. And when he uh, got back, we learned that he had broken his leg skiing. So I went and visited him in the hospital. You know, he's got everything fixed up. Then he came back to school. And the day he came back to school, we, you know, kind of reconnected in the playground. And he took his shoe off, his other shoe, and threw it at me. And I picked it up and threw it back at him. And, you know, he had had his foot out of the cast just a matter of two days. And I ended up hitting the, the, the fracture and rebroke his leg. I mean, so that's the second grade. So I got this really unique spotlight, you know, and on me very early on as a kid. And I was the black sheep in my family. I only mention that because I think it's going to be relevant, you know, to part of the story about, you know, what happened as I started to mature and get into experimenting with substance abuse and other mood altering substances. So there I was in second grade in the principal's office. My family was brought in, you know, and they were basically saying, you know, your son's having difficulty in class. He has a very short attention span and we think he needs a higher level of support and he should be evaluated. So I was remember being taken to some specialist and they had me rearranging these little wooden blocks in a certain order and I've learned to, to come find out that it was a psychologist who was giving me a test anyway halfway through it I got so upset I just knocked all the blocks off the table so they stopped the evaluation and pulled me aside and you know I said well you're going to need some therapy reminding the audience it's second grade now so here I am I've been labeled branded and uh, I'm a kid that clearly needs additional support at, at that young age so I was moved to a special private school where the classes were smaller and people could focus more on, you know, my learning disabilities, as I was told. So anyway, from third grade going forward, just was having a hard time at school. Things got worse uh, for me. And I remember my second day in third grade, I was at this school, had to take a bus an hour to go there. And uh, the teacher called on me and said, Scott, would you mind coming to the front of the room and showing us on the map where the Pacific Ocean is. Now, you know, you have a 50-50 chance when you're looking at America 
to pick the right ocean. Well, I picked the Atlantic. I picked the wrong ocean because I just didn't know. And I remember the entire class laughing at me and not in a good way. And I remember going back to my desk. This is third grade, remind you. And I took every pencil I had on my desk. I broke it and I threw them at the teacher. And it was one of those old desks where you lift up the lid and I lift up the lid and I put my head in there and slammed the lid down on my head. So I was immediately taken to the principal's office. My parents were called and, you know, blah, blah. So now I'm in a second year of trauma and I'm having a real hard time figuring out what's wrong with me. And I got relabeled again as a disciplinary problem, a behavior problem, uh, a non-starter student. And, but my, fortunately for me, my siblings were at the same school because it was a not only a, a great private school, but it was also a school for kids who had special needs during those days. So anyway, so they couldn't really kick me out. And then I got moved to fourth grade. And then I had a teacher who was a uh, deputy sheriff part-time, kept a little wooden hickory paddle up in the wall, threatened everybody every day. And those were the days where they could still spank kids. So I made it a point that year, I would not, I would not get that paddle. And the option was simply, you either write sentences or you take the paddle. So Fast forwarding, I'm going through the year, barely got through, summer came, didn't get too much trouble, and then I got into fifth grade. And fifth grade is where, you know, all of a sudden now I've got a little bit of a maturation rate going on, and I had this really horrible teacher, I called him, you know, horrible teacher, but his name was Mr. Krebs. He's no longer alive, so I'm sure I can say his name, and I was, you know, kind of the master of inappropriate behavior in the classroom because that's how I got my attention as a kid. So, and I'm giving this information as a baseline for my future as I move into the story. So one day I got my buddies to take straight pins and bend them and use rubber bands. And there was an old clock behind the, the teacher when the teacher faced us, which went right above the old chalkboard. And I trained my buddies on how to take the straight pins and fire them at the clock and make a lot of noise and disrupt the classroom. So one day, uh, the teacher got really upset and called me out. And I said, look, it wasn't me. You know, I didn't point to my buddies. It was them. So the next day we came back fully armed with a whole box of straight pins and we, everybody bent them up and we set up and we fired them off. And sure enough, uh, the teacher turned around and was just going ballistic and made me stand up, asked me to leave the class, tried to blame me for all of it. And I was sent to the principal's office. So Within an hour, an ambulance and the police were coming to the school. And I'm thinking, oh, this can't be. It can't be something I did. But in my head, because I suffer from catastrophic thinking, I think, well, somehow this is not going to be my fault. Turns out Mr. Krebs had had a heart attack right after my class. And the police were brought in. My folks were called. I was sat down. And they basically told me, now mind you, fifth grade, I think I was 12 years old. I was now being labeled as somebody who could be arrested for involuntary or voluntary manslaughter if the teacher died. I, you know, I couldn't believe it. And my folks were shocked. They were pointing their fingers like that. I had something to do with this. It was just, you know, it was just serendipitous timing, if you will. So I'm in the next class and, you know, they sent me back to the class. They came and got me again. And I was interviewed by law enforcement and they were asking me what happened. And, you know, fortunately for me, Mr. Krebs survived. And I went on to my sixth grade year, the next year at the school. So anyway, fast forwarding. So that's kind of what happened to me in my single digit years. And then I moved into public school. Then I was sent to a private school in Arizona and had my worst GPA ever. So I came back to San Diego. I wasn't home three days in summer school, making up for my bad GPA. And guy gives me his uh, cigarette. He goes, hey, would you hold this while I go to the bathroom? I said, sure. So it's in my hand. And who walks in? The vice principal. So I was expelled from summer school. You know, we get three days suspended, actually. So, you know, clearly, I kind of felt like, you know, wh what is going on with my world? How is this possibly continuing to happen to me? Why is this happening to me? You know, was I brought here from some other planet? I mean, you know, what is wrong with me? And that's where I kind of started to spin some of my thinking. And as I got through that junior year in high school, I had a year left and I did everything I could to kind of hunker down. 
Um, but I started drinking uh, in my you know, junior high school years and then into my high school years. And because I went away to boys school when I was 15, I didn't get my driver's license until I was uh, in my late 16 year. So I used to ride my bike up to the liquor store when I was home. And in those days, uh, you know, the fast food and this, you know, 7-Eleven chains would sell liquor out near the San Diego State University area because I hated waiting in line at the uh, fraternity houses. They had, you know, they served beer to anybody, but the line was long. So I would always buy a half pint, put it in my little 501 jeans because that half pint fit perfectly. And I'd be on my Stingray and I used to go buy liquor. I put a white shirt on with a tie because I grew up in a family retail business. So I knew how to look older. That was easy to do. And that's how I used to drink on weekends and no one really knew it and everyone else was doing it. So it wasn't that big a deal. So as I got to my senior high school, then all of a sudden I got introduced to marijuana and methamphetamine and I loved it. I love the way mood altering, I call them mood altering substances. When I took them, I loved the way I felt and the way I felt was I didn't really feel anything. I was anesthetized. So I really enjoyed that and it caused my brain to stop worrying about what it was people were doing with me or around me and it gave me an excuse to not have to deal with you know the consequences of some of my behavior so that progression went on through my late teens and then I got introduced to cocaine and back in those days this is you know back in the late well early 70s to mid 70s anything that you could purchase you know from a narcotics perspective was pretty pure so it was pretty potent stuff but I was always working. So I was working and partying and working and partying. And that's went on through high school and then my late teens and into my twenties. And I wouldn't uh, turn it off. And I was starting to experiment now with second all uh, barbiturates, benzos are called. And then I started to introduce uh, more cocaine and really got into marijuana in a big way. And then started doing hallucinogens because they were really just, you know, LSD and mushrooms. And it's fascinating. Here we are in 2019. And I, I just heard from a, high-profile drug counselor here at San Diego that magic mushrooms and LSD are back in middle school. I mean, it's unbelievable with all the things we have going on between fentanyl, heroin, you know, the great death and other things that are exposed to kids are exposed to today that LSD and magic mushrooms are back in middle school. So I just continue to, you know, work hard during the week and party hard, drink hard on the weekends. And, you know, my, my life was pretty manageable. And I, you know, was still one of the four kids in the family and I was doing, I was still the black sheep, but I wasn't getting in trouble like I used to because I kept to myself because every time I drank or I got high, I had an episode of some sort. So I tried to stay away from um, any appropriate places and, you know, did a lot of my drinking and drugging alone or with friends at home rather than going out partying. But as I got older in my 20s, I started to go to the happy hour. That was my great place to kind of burn it off and I'd always go in and drink and then always bring in some cocaine. So if I had too much to drink, I had my cocaine to kind of keep me going throughout the night. So that's kind of how my drug use progressed. And ultimately, um, as I moved into my 20s, um, I was, you know, ex experiencing some blackouts. And I, I know that because my friends would tell me that the way I behaved the night before was totally inappropriate. And then I, you know, met my soon to be wife in my mid to late 20s. I've known her. She was actually an old family friend, but she had matured and had an incident of her own health issue. And I remember calling her and we fell in love over the phone. Eventually we, uh, we got married and that, I was about 27 and a half, 28 when um, that took place. And I was trying to figure out ways to take less medication into my body, mind and soul but I wasn't very good at it. So I went and saw, you know, a specialist and they said, well, you know, here's some medication, take this. You won't crave as much and you won't be as depressed. Therefore you won't have to drink. And then I found a way to take the medication and mix it with the alcohol and the drugs. And it was awesome. I, I was sleeping better. I was waking up more effectively and I was anesthetized more waking hours each week than I ever had been. So I was happy, but again, still working 80, 90 hours a week. That was a big thing in our family. You work hard, you can do whatever you want after work, and it didn't really matter. My family was starting to get concerned about some of my behavior and the memory issue, and I was embarrassing people at you know weddings and bar mitzvahs and special social events. So I stopped going and just kept going back to the bar. And I loved happy hour because I could always get a two for one. And I was like, that, that showed cheers. You know, you'd walk into a bar and everyone knew my name. And I remember 
one Friday night, I walked in and everybody stopped. I mean, it was, you know, 200 people and they started clapping. And I thought, what is this? Somebody's birthday. It turned out it was my 64th consecutive happy hour. And it was a record for the bar. So I was being celebrated that night for coming in for 64 consecutive Fridays. Not a great benchmark of success in one's career of life, but I was honored that night because my drinks were free for the whole month. Anyway, and I thought, you know, how proud am I? You know, and I'm thinking I had two grams of cocaine in my pocket. This is going to be a great night. And I remember I had a major blackout that night. Don't remember a thing other than that going in and seeing that event. Nothing else after seven o'clock that I ever remember. So, you know, I'm, I'm still on this medication, still seeing this psychiatrist, still trying to work on the depression. And, you know, and they said, look, why don't you just stop? And I thought, well, stop what? Well, stop drinking, because that was the one that you know, people saw publicly. So I said, okay. And I'd stop drinking for a while. And all of a sudden, my cocaine use was up. My marijuana consumption was up. I was taking more methamphetamine. And back in those days, by the way, one of the things that I talk about in my book that I wrote about was I was an unlicensed pharmacist. And, you know, a lot of the listeners will know what that means. Some of you won't, but, you know, you'll figure it out. Unlicensed pharmacist. So I had this distribution ring. San Diego was the methamphetamine capital of the world. Uh, we were had methamphetamine labs all over our county. Plus, it was coming across the border. And I was dealing with importing it rather than manufacturing it because I just didn't want to go through the headache. So that was something I was doing to help supplement my own substance abuse was uh, I became a distributor. And coming from a retail environment, I understood sales and marketing and the opportunity to, uh, you know, sell enough drugs to, to not have to pay for my own personal consumption. So I apologize about my puppy in the background, but uh, there's some activity around where I'm at. So the, the goal, you know, was to try to find a way to stop drinking. And I did. I was successful. You know, and then I became a weekend alcoholic and that's somebody who basically just drinks from Friday to Sunday. And um, my wife was real concerned because we'd go to events and she'd have to drive home the next morning on Sunday. She'd say, here's the list. And I remember the first time she made the list. I said, what, what's the list for? She said, you need to call all these people and apologize for what happened last night. And I'm like, what? She goes, do you remember anything? I said, no, I don't. So then I started getting to the point where I'm not going out with my wife anymore. We've gotten married. And, you know, at our wedding, I remember I had cocaine, you know, and we were at the Hotel Dell, one of the nicest premier hotel properties in San Diego. And I had cocaine up in our room. And my buddies and I just basically did coke the night of our wedding. And I remember when it was time to toast the bride and the groom, my brother was... Uh, who, who we lost a long time ago was toasting me and I was in the bathroom with my buddies and, and how sad it was. And someone came and got me and says, you know, your, your family's toasting you, your brother's toasting you now and how embarrassed I was when I walked in late. And I remember my father-in-law, when we were setting up the event, he says, how many open bars would you like? And I said, how many are you willing to pay for? And he said, well, I, I think one's enough. And I go, but that's good. means everyone has to walk across the room so I kind of facilitated him having three separate open bars so nobody would have to wait in line for their booze. And I remember giving all of my best men in my wedding party whiskey flasks, you know, metal, sterling silver flasks that were hammered metal. And, and I had my initials. I think I had initials put on for all of them as a special gift. And I filled them all up. My big drink in those days uh, was uh, Southern Comfort. That was my favorite. And I remember Janis Joplin got a fur coat once on stage when she held up a bottle. So I saw that and I wrote Southern Comfort because I had a license plate. I actually was so embedded in my consumption of alcohol and other mood altering substances that I actually got a license plate here in San Diego that said so comf on it. And I took a picture of it, sent it to Southern Comfort and they sent me uh, t-shirts and, you know, glasses and coasters and all kinds of fun stuff for months on end. And I remember how proud I was just re re remarking back to the, the day when I was, you know, 64 consecutive happy hours. So, and those are very unusual benchmarks when you think about life in general, you know, most people are doing things like, you know, I played sports, but I didn't overly play and they were getting awards, different things. And I was doing volunteer work in the community, but just enough to get by. 
And again, I was in the family business, so I was in the background working hard, making very little money. And, um, you know, all I wanted to do was just work hard, get enough money and play and not be bothered by anybody. But my behavior was starting to really, really magnify now. And as I got into my late 20s, I, my wife and I were talking about it. And she says, you know, maybe you need some help. And I said, well, I'm seeing Gary, you know, the doctor. He says, well, he says that, you know, when you're ready, you'll let us know. And if there's anything I can do to help you. So I never went to any kind of, you know, program. I never really went to any, you know, anonymous meetings because I didn't think I had a problem. I was managing my life. I got married. I had a condo. My wife and I were living there. And life seemed to be okay. I mean, I was managing, I thought, except when I drank, I blacked out. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of a new podcast called Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBT Community. In this podcast, we cover cases not so well known, as well as more notorious ones. A lot of interesting info mixed with a little bit of snark, but always focusing on the empathy I feel for the victims. Please give us a listen on your favorite podcast app, push subscribe, and remember, it's not a crime to be gay. Unless you're a murderer. So going to the last part of my binge thing, I gone back to alcohol again and I was mixing it with cocaine again. And I was on a trip in New York, uh, on a business trip. And I remember getting there, I think it was on a Sunday. And I, and I don't remember Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or even Thursday. And then Friday morning, early a.m., 4 a.m., I was uh, in my, what, what, I was in a bar. And that's the last thing I remember. And then I woke up uh, in my bed in the hotel, fully clothed, a suit on, three-piece suit, a tie, and my London fog, you know, raincoat, because, you know, New York in in November was uh, rainy. So I called downstairs to the front desk, and I said, can anybody tell me what is going on? And they go, Mr. Silverman. I said, yes. We're so glad you called us. Uh, Why don't you get yourself together and please come downstairs? We'd like to have you talk with our security team. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Now, I had been in a blackout for nearly three days. Uh, there was 14 of us on our team there, and I was one of the team leaders. But I wasn't at the meetings. So I go downstairs about 5 in the morning in, in clothes that were just soaked with alcohol. And, and I couldn't find my cash, my traveler's checks. Yes, we used those back in those days. And my airline ticket, all of my assets were gone. So I go down to the front desk, and they go, why don't you walk over there? Mr. Jones, I'll say for now, is waiting to talk with you. So he sits me down and he says, first and foremost, let me just tell you that we would like to invite you to never, ever come back to our property. Now, I had no idea what they were talking about. And I looked at him and I said, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, well, let me break it down for you. At about two in the morning, New York City's finest law enforcement officials brought you to us. You were completely passed out. We put you on a luggage rack and we took you back to your room. Do you remember any of that? I said, absolutely not. I I think you're making this story up. He says, no, we're not making it up. Then we took your traveler's checks, your money, and your ticket because we didn't want you to lose it because we want to make sure you got home and as soon as possible or at least left here. So we put you in your bed and here you are a few hours later. Do you have any idea what happened last night? I said, no. He goes, well, let me break it down for you. You were found across from the train station. I think it was there Carnegie Hall. I'm not sure. And you were actually passed out in the street. I said, what do you mean? He says, we were told by law enforcement that you were horizontally laying in the gutter on the street as if you'd fallen there or you were sitting and fell over and fell asleep. And when you think about the story about the the typical
typical alcoholic or the old alcoholic or the drunk. That's where they were always found is passed out in the street. And here I am, you know, this business guy in a family business with a team of coworkers and cohorts. And I was passed out in the streets of New York city. Now, what's interesting is I used to carry a badge at work, a corporate security badge, because in our business, we would go into different malls after hours. And part of my job was to, you know, operations is to make sure that, you know, if the alarm went off, I had to go meet with law enforcement. So I had this badge in my pocket and I also had a room key. And coincidentally, that week that I was in New York, there was a national conference of undercover narcotics officers or undercover narcotics detectives. I can't remember exactly what it was. And my badge was the same color. So they made the assumption I was associated somehow with this conference. Law enforcement did. So rather than taking me and arresting me, they gave me back to the hotel staff because I had a room key on me and I was dressed nice. So that morning, I decided after they gave me back all my personal property that I, I had to check out. And I was flying home actually that night. So I took my bags with me to my morning appointment. And I was devastated because. You know, I saw a couple of my colleagues early in the morning. They they looked at me and just walked away. They didn't even want to talk to me because they had heard from what the hotel staff what happened. So I get to my first appointment, and I was just uncomfortable physically and emotionally. And I go to sit in this guy's office, and I said, "Can I use your phone?" He said, "Sure, just just close the door." So I go in and sit down. And it was a hot day. The window was open, the 44th floor of his, his building. So I went to the ledge of the window to just catch my breath because I just, I smelled like alcohol. It was my last outfit of the week and, and it was covered in alcohol. So I knew everyone knew now. And I'm thinking, how am I going to explain this to my crew, to my wife, to my family? And I sat on the windowsill and I said, you know what? All I have to do is close my eyes and lean back and just float to the ground and everything will be peaceful. Everything. And I was ready. So I moved back, got in the position. I was just going to lean back. I closed my eyes. I'm closing my eyes now, just reflecting on that moment. And I was prepared to end my life because I just couldn't figure out how I was going to explain this one away. And two things happened. One, in my head, I remember my mom and I having a discussion earlier that year when I had talked about, you know, suicide or we talked about it. And, you know, because as a kid, when things went bad, I well, I'll just jump off a bridge. You know, we all do that. I think as kids, we think about that. And she told me once, twice maybe, that suicide is selfish, son. If there's something you want to talk about, I'm always here for you. So I heard that in my head, but it didn't matter at that point because I knew I was going to have to explain myself openly with everybody because the cat was out of bed. So I, I just continued to scoot back. I had one hand off the ledge and I was ready to end my life. And in walks this guy. It's his office. And he says, Scott, what the hell are you doing, man? You're going to fall. I said, I'm just getting some air. I'll be right in. You know, you've heard the term divine intervention. So between his activity and my mom's voice, suicide is selfish. I pulled myself back in. I completely broke down emotionally. I called my wife, you know, and I, it was like, I don't know, six in the morning in San Diego. And I said, call Gary, coming home tonight, and I'm ready to do whatever it takes. She knew exactly because I'd been calling her, I guess, all week at weird hours of the night, describing the inappropriate behavior that was going on. You know, stupid stuff, getting in fights, getting knocked over, and then, of course, the hotel thing. And flew home Friday night, met with my family, told them what was going on, and Saturday morning, I checked into treatment. That was uh, November the 11th, 1984. That was and rock bottom. That was on, that, well, I, I didn't know. It's funny, Michael. I did not know what that even meant. I had never been 
told about, maybe I was told about treatment and what treatment options look like, but I, I'm sitting in this 28 day program. They told me the, when I checked in Saturday morning and the funny thing, cause I didn't drink that night coming home from New York. And the, the first thing that the intake person said to me was, you know, Scott, you'll be here for 28 days. I go, I don't care, whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. You tell me what to do and I will do it. And they said, we hope you partied well last night because it'll be your last party. And I'm thinking, God, another missed opportunity. How is it I keep misstepping? How is my timing always so off? Why do I feel like a victim of circumstance and I'm sitting in a rehab? And you know, they gave me some medication, that which they normally do for, for detoxing. So my sobriety date is actually the 13th. I waited two days to establish my November 13th. You know, 1984 was my sobriety date, and it's it still continues to be my sobriety date. So this November, all goes well, you know, and I'm close to it. And I was at my, actually at my home group this morning, uh, sharing a little bit about coming up on my anniversary of my sobriety. I'll be celebrating 35 years of continuous sobriety. And, you, you know, when I say that out loud, it, it just sounds like, what? Because I live my life, you know, like most of us who have decided that we can't do what we used to do one day at a time because I can manage that. And I've learned, you know, holistic health and gut health and mindfulness and meditation that you can find ways to live in the moment. You can do anything. And I, I'm getting better at it. I got to tell you, at 65, I'm still working on it, which to me means I'm connected to what I need to be connected to to continue to move forward rather than, you know, saying, oh, I'm done it. I'm finished. Close the book on that. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I do. So that night, I remember going to my very first, you know, fellowship meeting and everyone that was at that meeting were either veterans who had been in the program or veterans of, you know, of the fellowship. And they asked the newcomers because we're in an institutional environment. Anybody have any questions? And I remember saying something goofy like, you know, how does this program work? And they said, really? Why don't you just try and listen? So, I don't know, it seemed like an attorney went, eternity went by, and they asked the question again of the newcomers. Does anyone have any questions? And I said, I don't understand your answer. And then they said, well, just take that cotton out of your ears and stick it in your mouth. And I still wasn't clear, so they, they used a higher level of profanity to convince me that I just need to shut up and listen. And that was my very first message on my very first day in treatment. And I spent the next 28 days in an inpatient program listening to every suggestion everybody made. And as I went through family week and my wife got engaged and my, my, with the program and my parents came in and my siblings and some of my friends, some came and abandoned me. And then I even had the rabbi come visit me to tell me, you know, Scott, Jewish people do not have drinking problems. I go, Rabbi, I got an ID on my wrist and there are alarms on these doors that will confirm that I'm in an institution and I want to be here because everything I'm doing now starts to make sense because what I was doing before didn't. So that was kind of my trajectory um, going into, you know, the Thanksgiving season, being in treatment during the holiday season and then getting it. And I was lucky. I knock on wood and I, I'm grateful each day that I, I was able to grasp what people were telling me. And it was obviously a life-changing event. So from that day forward, I never took another drink or drug. And I've spent the last 34 years and eight months, nine months, finding ways to be of service and help others. So moving forward, um, you know, what I do today is I run and operate Confidential Recovery. It's an outpatient program that I started five years ago. There's a lot I've done, obviously, in the last 30 years. I, I ran a nonprofit for 18 years called Second Chance. It was a program put together to work with people coming out of jail and prison. And I uh, had 175 alcohol and drug-free beds at its peak. And we helped the underserved get jobs and housing. So I've spent my entire adult life trying to find ways to give back and to be of service and to help others and help families navigate getting their loved ones not only into treatment, but access to the appropriate level of care. And what I've learned is one size does not fit all. What I've learned is that 
everybody's different and everybody thinks they're different. And I'm trying to continually battle the stigma around people who have this disease of denial. I personally believe it's a disease. And when I talk and I publicly speak, whenever I'm invited, I talk about the stigma and I talk about the disease and I talk about addiction and I talk about there's hope and there's faith. And when you think about it, when you talk about a disease of denial and the inability to feel feelings, the person who's got the problem doesn't think they're the problem. They think everybody else is until it gets pointed out to them in a way that it becomes really clear that they are the problem and they're a big part of it. And nothing's really going to change until they're willing, until they're willing to try to access help, ask for help, or take some suggestions from people who are around them. So that's what I try to do today is be that beacon and be that light of hope and faith that there is an alternative. And I work now with families. I call myself a family navigator. I'm a crisis coach. And, you know, I invite people all the time, Michael. And if you don't mind, I'm going to give my phone number out right now. It's 619-993-2738. And I really, I challenge people, I dare people to call me or text me. And let's talk about something. If I can't help you, and, and look, anyone in this country or in the sound of my voice or your, you know, your program can call me anytime or text me anytime. And it doesn't matter where you are or what part of the country or the globe you're on. We can talk about it because I know watching the progression of what I call untreated trauma, we're seeing, you know, the suicide ideation is growing and it's getting to the younger and younger population. And, you know, this October, I'm going to be speaking at the Mental Health of America's National Conference here in San Diego. And my topic is if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. And the, the idea of that is to put the brakes on traditional substance abuse treatment, in my opinion right now, in our country is just not working. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that, but I do know this. In 2000, I think it was 17 when the last study was done, $40 billion is spent by America to go to treatment, $40 billion. And the industry has an outcome success rate of less than 5%, or another way of looking at it, 95% relapse rate if all you do is a 28-day program and nothing else. And my, my, my confidence is really high. You can ask any major insurance company, ask any major treatment center. And if they're really real and honest with you, they'll tell you that's the outcome. It's unfortunate. But they tend to blame the addict or the alcoholic saying, well, they weren't ready or they weren't willing or they didn't want to do the work. And the funny thing is, when we talk to people who have this disease of um, diabetes, for example, it's my best analogy, we never say that to them. You should eat less sugar. You know, you should watch what you eat, you know, and, but in the meantime, we're going to help you monitor your blood sugar level. And here's insulin if you need it. When, it, you know, back in my day, if you had a nice watch on, they would hesitate admitting you to treatment because they figured you weren't done. No maladaptive behavior is treated the way addiction is. We as a society do not look at any other medical issue the way we look at addiction. We see it as self self-inflicted basically it uh I, 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 not me Correct. but you know but i think i start seeing um someone being choosing to do this themselves to themselves right. rather than it becoming Absolutely. something that they can't control right no i i can remember people telling me wait 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 if you wouldn't pick up that drink would you have a drinking problem well People, there's nothing wrong with drinking. I think people do it all the time. The difficulty with me, a guy who's pre-wired a certain way, predisposed with what I call this addiction, I can't have one drink. I can't. I can't stop there. And I, you know, when I when I tell people, you know, and we haven't spoken about it yet, but we when we look at the current landscape of our country, you know, right now, we, people aren't even really talking about alcoholism anymore when you compare it to what's going on with the opioid crisis, prescription drug medication, medications written by DEA licensed providers, doctors, pharmacies, et cetera. And then you look at, you know, the, the fentanyl that's being mixed with Oxycontin now and with heroin. And you take a look at the counterfeit medication that's being made. Some in our country, some in China, 
some in Mexico, and it's coming through Canada, and it's coming through the mail, and it's being sold on the dark web. We have got this level of consumption of narcotics now in our country we have never seen. And you can't open up a newspaper, listen to the radio, watch TV, turn on Instagram or Facebook or any social media and not read about some catastrophic overdose. I mean, just recently that, you know, famous young baseball player was found and he, according to the autopsy, overdosed. I think it was fentanyl, oxycontin, oxymorphine, and uh, opioids. So the, the concern that I have today is somebody who's been in long-term recovery, who's now in the treatment business and in the crisis intervention business, it scares me because the way young people are consuming narcotics today, there's no, well, there never was before, but well, there was because the quality control in the old days was we used to steal stuff from the pharmacy. I used to get drugs before the DEA put numbers on, you know, DEA distributed or licensed providers. We used to go into hospitals and we'd steal them off the medical cart. So we knew there was a, a pill. We didn't think about it then, but now people are picking up, you know, counterfeit Xanax and counterfeit, you know, Oxycontin and it's cut with fentanyl because they can put such a small dose in. And I, I know that I've been interviewed by many people in law enforcement. And I asked the question of them, what is the motivation? And I know what it is, but I asked the question, why would someone distribute a product? And I get inter interviewers ask me all the time, why would someone who distributes, distributes a product that kills a consumer, why would they want to do that? And I said, well, every time there's an overdose, it gets on the news. And every time it gets on the news, their sales incre increase. So that's the answer to that. You know, you know, is it no news is good news, but this news is bad news. And bad news for a drug seeker is how do I get higher? How do I, you know, spend less to get more? And just to give you an idea, in the West Coast, methamphetamine is 10 times less expensive than it was 10 years ago, 10 times less. And 10 years ago, it had 5% purity. Now it has 90% purity. That's just methamphetamine. And I know that because the Department of Justice, the medical examiner, the DA, the DEA, they're sharing that. I'm on the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force here in San Diego. I'm on the Methamphetamine Task Force. I am fully immersed, and I'm now classified as a subject matter expert by the local television station because whenever something comes up that's topical around substance abuse or an overdose, or you know counterfeit medication, they're calling me and saying, "Can you come give us a read on it?" I was just interviewed today uh, by a station. They just had a uh, a little mini summit at one of the colleges in San Diego, and the DA was there, and they called me and said, "Can you come give us an opinion on recovery and what works?" So that's what I talk about today as much as I can, because you know law enforcement talks about the problem, the medical examiner talks about the morbidity rate. You know, right now in our country, it's north of 240 people die every single day behind prescription opioids. 240 a day, which technically is a plane crash when you think about it. If we had a plane crashing every day, the federal government would intervene in a way, the society would intervene in a way, the communities would just say, stop it. And one of the things that I'm very involved with is a group called the Safe Homes Coalition, which is a group that helps educate families on how to get prescription medication, unused and unsafe medication out of the home. Because right now, according to science, the average heroin user, 70% of the heroin users started on prescription medication. And now doctors have gotten smarter. The DEA is putting more pressure, the American Medical Society, have decided in Surgeon General, CDC, they've all said, look, we need to stop writing these prescriptions. Well, the person who's addicted doesn't say, oh, this is a cultural shift. I'll reduce my consumption. They're finding ways to backfill their prescriptions with fentanyl or street drugs that are cut with fentanyl. That's why, in my opinion, we're seeing this level of overdosing going up. And, you know, some states have said, well, we finally started to reduce it. No, they haven't. They're just reclassifying it as a suicide versus an overdose. And I'm one of those people, I want to see people who overdose get the same kind of support that someone 
like myself did if, if I had reported it, it, it tries to commit suicide because someone who's taking drugs today that are gotten from the street or from the dark web are technically potentially going to be expiring from their experience. So to me, that's like an unconscious or subconscious attempt at suicide. We should treat them the same way as we do a suicide. Put them in a hold, observe them for a couple of days, give them some information. Don't let them leave till they make some commitment to look into what's going on. So I'm real passionate about that, Michael. And I'm also very conscious that I'm only one person. And I know there's thousands out there that are working on this. And you know, we, we can't seem to get ourselves together in the room yet to talk about, you know, nationalizing some sort of mechanism to try to really, you know, there's prevention programs everywhere and there's great people doing great work. And I'm, I know I'm on the Facebook pages with them, you know, seeing it on Instagram and watching the, the people talking about getting into sobriety, staying in sobriety, you know, but I also see the people that are treatment resistant and I see how families struggle with their loved ones to try to convince them to get into treatment, but no one is prepared to deal with a family member with addiction unless they've experienced it before. So oh, I would really, my biggest appeal today would be to say, look, if you can't call me and call me, here's my number again, 619-993-2738. I'm in San Diego, California. And if you're sitting in some other part of the country going, well, you're too far away, make the call. We will talk through what your options and opportunities are. And if you don't want to call me, that's fine. Three magic words that are hardest to say, I need help. How do we determine? And I'm going to give you one more fact, and then I'm going to let you ask me anything you want to ask me, Michael. According to science, 15% of our population has an active addiction issue that will erupt this next 12 months. And when I say active addiction issue, I'm talking substance abuse. I'm not even talking gambling, food, sex, internet. And I'm sure there's others out there that I didn't mention. 15%. But what's even more scary is that 15% of us, you know, I'm not them anymore. I'm, I'm an addict in recovery, but I'm not actively using or acting out. 15% will impact seven people a day each, whether it be through their level of impairment, whether it be through their driving, whether it be through their performance at work, whether it be their relationships with their family or their siblings or their neighbors or other parts of the community. So if you think about that, that's 85% of our population. So if we have 330 million people in the US, you guys all do the math, 260 million plus are impacted by this disease, I wanna call it, and I believe it is, of addiction and substance abuse. And again, people will push back, well, just don't pick it up. You won't have a problem. Well, guess what? Everybody knows somebody now. And I think the, the, the number that's projected for 2025 is, what is it, almost like one in six people will have a, a major problem and they'll have to deal with it. And they can't just deal with it by stopping. They're going to need help. Hey, we're Renee and Adrian, and we are the Outlandish Historians. We're sisters, nerds, and lovers of all things history, except bell bottoms. Keep that in the past. Come hang out with us on the Dear World of History podcast, where we'll frolic through time as we chat and geek out over the good, the bad, and the downright ugly history of the world. We promise you don't have to be a licensed historian to travel through time with us. Maritime disasters? Check. Historical serial killers? Check. Glamorous and petty royals? Check and check. You can find us almost anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. So chug that drink me bottle and come on down the rabbit hole. It's going to be a wild ride. You mentioned 95% recidivism. Correct. Um, it, it, that, 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 just so we're clear, the, the fact of that follows, if somebody just goes into a 28-day pro, for example, like I did, and that's all I do, meaning if there isn't a continuum of care, if you don't continue you know, with your, your clinical support, or if you don't get into a, so, some sort of social model, or you get into a recovery group, or you join some, some, some other faction of getting support, meaning it's, it's like a diet. Once you finish losing your weight and you hit your goal weight, 
you can't just go back to doing what you used to do. There's things you have to learn how to do them. And you can do that during treatment, but you need to take that information and you've got to continue that education. Because if you've been getting high for 10 or 15 years or more or 20 years, you can't fix it in a month. That's the point. So 28 days stay, do nothing else. The science shows you have a 95% chance of relapsing or recidivating, correct? So we have Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, these are all things you definitely recommend becoming involved with. Well, they're, 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 the 12-step programs, the fellowships of recovery, there's CA, there's MA, there's SA, there's OA, there's GA. There's a ton of them. And by the way, you can go online and you can get into a virtual meeting. So if you're sitting in some rural area going, well, I can't find treatment, but you have a computer or a phone, you can go online, you can join a meeting virtually. So that's certainly a pathway. I also tell people that, look, because I remember they call it the God problem in, in recovery. And I understand some people are uncomfortable. It's, it seems to be a faith-based program. But here's the thing. If that's something that doesn't work for you, there's smart recovery. There's, there's Buddhism out there. There are all kinds of different faith-based groups, you know, uh, that have their own form of recovery or they've adopted a form of recovery. I don't care what it is you do, but just do something, meaning don't avoid it all because it, it doesn't make sense to you or it irritates you or you think there's too much God stuff or not enough God stuff. Don't let that be a reason not to get extended support and help is what I say, no matter what it is you pick. But don't do what you've always done because you'll get what you've always gotten because my best thinking nearly caused me to take my own life. My best thinking had me putting poison in my body every day trying to kill myself. So that part of that of my mind that I've been healing with my own recovery program, if I stop doing that, I could potentially relapse. And according to science, if your body's been without mood-altering substances for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but you pick up that day, it's almost like you never stopped. And I don't quite understand that phenomenon, but it's been explained to me that that is something you don't get a choice on. So if I were to drink tomorrow, it's like I've been drinking the last 34 plus years. So whatever help works, but get help, meaning ask for help, seek help, be inquisitive, ask a colleague, talk to a friend, talk to a family member, check in with them because they all know. You know, I thought it was a big secret. Nobody knew I was had a drinking problem. When I went in treatment, you could hear the applause. Thank God he's off the streets. <laughs> 